who can give you a single articulation of what America is, of the idea that it is we're defending? I don't know of one. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup is Zach Chukowski. Zach is a Democratic political consultant from North Carolina. He's a principal at Title Fight and the founder and CEO of Brackish Solutions. Previously, he has served as the campaign manager for Katie Hill's successful congressional campaign, flipping a seat from red to blue, and as the political director of the Lincoln Project. Zach, welcome back. Great to see you. Ron, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Also returning to the roundup, the one and only Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other fine publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author, an excellent newsletter called greatpower.us. She's also a great travel buddy. We went to Ukraine together. How you doing, Molly? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. How are you? Great. Uh, let's look at what we got this week. Joe Biden holds his first meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in over a year. We'll discuss the consequences and how it connects with the wars in Ukraine and Gaza. Then we'll break down Biden's dismissal of the multiple polls now showing Trump leading in nearly every key battleground state, whether he should be more concerned, and how to read Joe Manson's decision not to run for re-election in the Senate. Then we'll look closely at Israel's raid of a Hamas command center at a Gaza hospital, the doom spiral of trust in media, and the pro-Israel march in Washington. After the main show, we'll go over to Politicology Plus and talk about Speaker of the House MAGA Mike Johnson working with Democrats to successfully avoid a government shutdown and what you really need to know about the very strange flag prominently posted outside his office. We'd love for you to join us for that conversation and more ad-free episodes on a private podcast feed. Just head over to politicology.com slash plus or click the link at the top of your show notes. On Wednesday, after months of building tension between the U.S. and China over issues like Taiwan, cybersecurity, espionage, sanctions, and human rights violations, not to mention Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year, oh, and the spy balloon we shot down earlier this year, President Biden met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping for the first time in over a year at the APEC summit in San Francisco. This meeting is particularly important because China is central to the web of networked autocracies that we've discussed so much that include Russia, who's at war with Ukraine, and Iran, who's funding and training Hamas and their war against Israel. Uh, Xi and Vladimir Putin have built an anti-American alliance. They met last month in China. Axios reported last month that top Biden administration officials have been sharing an article in Foreign Affairs by former Defense Secretary Bob Gates that argued that both Xi and Putin believe American and other major democracies are, quote, past their prime and have entered an irreversible decline. Before going into their private meeting, Biden and Xi both spoke with reporters. She told Biden, quote, planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed. And Biden said, quote, we have to ensure competition does not veer into conflict. The Associated Press reported Biden was expected to push Xi to use his sway over Iran to make it clear that they and their proxies should take action that could expand the Israel-Hamas war. 
China is a big buyer of Iranian oil, and the Biden administration see China as having considerable leverage over Iran, which not only backs Hamas, but Hezbollah, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, which have both fired rockets at Israel since October 7th. Uh, Oh, yeah. And right after this meeting, Biden called Xi a dictator again. So, (laughs) Molly, that's a lot to unpack. Um, First, I kind of want your top-level reading of the meeting, some insights going into it, and what the consequences are that you can you can see coming out of it. Um, and then maybe we can dig in a little bit to the Xi-Putin alliance and how this is going to shape the war in Ukraine specifically. I mean, did this meeting need to happen? Of course it needed to happen. I mean, we can't stay in a holding pattern of not talking to China when they're up to many machinations for very long. So yes, the meeting needed to happen. Yes, it is positive that it happened. What I don't like, even in listening to your summary, is how if you just sort of swap out Xi and China for Putin and Russia, it's like the delusional past meetings between the U.S. and Russia where we walk away like, I looked into his soul and I understand who he is and Xi's a straight guy. And it's like, is he really a straight guy? I don't really think he's a straight guy. If you've read any of the stuff about who this guy is. Nothing against straight people. But. I mean, straight as in straightforward, <laughs> straight speaking. Uh, but um, so I just, I, I, and I know they're both trying to like lean into this. We're not about to start shooting at each other, you know, atmosphere, which is true. But it, I really, like, I'm really glad we're going to get some more pandas and be part of this perpetual Are China we? propaganda myth about oh. the pandas. Yes, we're getting more pandas. This is the biggest deliverable from this freaking oh. bilat is pandas and fentanyl. But um, hopefully pandas with fentanyl. But Pandas uh, and just, no more fentanyl. Are they going <laughs> to cut down on the They're going to stop flooding the United States with right. stuff the, to well, make they're illegal stop fentanyl. flooding Mexico with the ingredients to I make mean, the fentanyl, which then comes across the border. Which but, we all know is on purpose. But yes, right. I mean, okay, great, fine, yeah. fantastic. These are great things. Yeah. But the the broader optics of this, to me, just feel like this... Like, really, are we back to calling China a competitor and not an adversary? Because that's a misreading of the situation. That is the reset. That is all the positive, happy thing thinking that we trap ourselves in that then leads to the invasion of Ukraine a second time when we're in these conflicts and we don't know how we got there. And I just, I'm very concerned about this magic happy world that Bill Burns and Jake Sullivan have built for us, where apparently we've already lost so miserably to Russia that we're now making nice with China and trying to make it seem as if they are not part of that same spectrum that you're talking about, the same web of autocracies that are very closely collaborating and coordinating, but also leveraging opportunity that comes up. Where does Hamas go after they invade Israel? They fly to Moscow and have a nice lunch with Putin. Which you know, they did. Of course, because Russia has been supporting Hamas for a long time. Not because they care ideologically one way or the other, but because it's a useful disruptive tool in moments like this. When suddenly everybody's like, hmm, can we really keep supporting Ukraine? Maybe we need to do these other things instead. Super useful narrative and physical disruptive moment for, for Russia. Um, and to think China doesn't understand that even more effectively. And if you look at some of the stuff that's happening in the information domain, it's been kind of fascinating in the past bit. But um, I just, so it's just this whole dynamic of, yes, we need to talk to China, but we need to be really realistic about the China to which we are talking. And this, the language that was being used, if you listen to what Xi is saying, and Xi is 
not Putin. She is personable. People go and they have nice desserts with him. You may famously remember the Trump, we had very nice chocolate cake, oh, yeah. endless discussion. But yeah. like people go and they have a nice meal with she who is very pleasant and like not a jerk, unlike Putin who just sort of glowers at you. But like, and they feel like they had this great meeting. But what what did he actually say? Oh, we can all live in the world together provided you stay out of our stuff you don't come near us, you don't tell us how to run ourselves, and you don't care when we take over Taiwan. P.S. And it's like, okay, so this is the same stuff that Moscow used to say. You know, we have our sphere of influence, you have yours. And look how that ended up. So I just, I really feel like there's an effort being made to not make it seem as if Russia and China are in the same spectrum. And it's this hope. You hear it in Europe, in some European countries, you hear it in the United States that um, you can split them somehow and that China will help us against Russia or that Russia will help us against China, however that will work out, which is just not a reality-based assessment of anything at all. Um, And I just heard so many echoes of that fundamental misconception of what is happening in the world right now that I'm very concerned. And maybe it was all just for show and behind the scenes there's something else, but that's not what we're seeing from that meeting, in my view. As usual, I think I think Molly more or less nailed it. I, I totally agree. I I am legitimately very excited about the pandas. I I am happy about and that. We all and love I think pandas, that, you know, don't we? Yeah, and I think I think stopping the flood of fentanyl that would be significant. And so there are a lot of things that are in a vacuum significant that could happen coming from this. Could I think could it could it could happen? We'll see if they do. But also, I think that's in a vacuum. In grand scheme of things, it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I agree completely with Molly. I don't. I do not understand the happy speak around this. I like. I thought that we were well past this point in our relationship with China. And apparently all of a sudden we are not, you know, one thing that I'm going to be tracking and following closely in the aftermath of this is what's going on on TikTok. This is going to be a recurring theme for me throughout the show, by the way, because look like they own the, the source of information for most young people in this country. And so how are they going to put their thumb on the scales to what extent, how obvious will it be? Will we respond to that? Is that going to come up in the meeting? Cause it's not being mentioned very often. Um, but I think that is a massive, massive thing that has to be addressed and, and it's going to, it's going to drive the narrative one way or another. Right. And it's not going to be the narrative that we want to drive. The not being mentioned stuff is so fascinating. You're exactly right about that. Like what happened to the Uyghur camps? (laughs) Like, are we not, did we not talk about the Uyghur camps at all? Like the fact that China is imprisoning millions of people for quote re-education. Great. Let's not talk about that in the meeting. The TikTok thing is fascinating. I don't know if anybody saw yesterday, there was this like thousands of young, primarily women of color, discovering Osama bin Laden's letter to America as a deep and insightful document about the ills of America and the world, which they are posting on videos of themselves on TikTok and other social media platforms, but primarily TikTok. By the way, the uh, right way to think about this. TikTok, and I just want to underscore Zach's point before you continue, <laughs> no, where, totally where he says the, that like this is the primary source of information. You need to be thinking about this as Gen Z's Google. That's how yeah. they use it. It is, a, it is a search engine to them. That's how they find and, and surface information. And China is controlling that. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Zach's point is a really good one. And this whole thing where, like, the, I, there is clearly an effort being made to use Islamic-y, deep, hard, ideological yeah. stuff to come after the U.S. from the perspective of the global south, which, of course, is a huge line of effort for Russia and China online. 
And it's just deeply concerning that we're not paying attention to those things. One other thing that I just want to raise in this is I do think that we are in a stronger negotiating position today than we would have been a year ago. You know, I think one of the couple of three lines that are jumping out to me are, uh, you know, now all these articles you see kind of that there's cracks in, in Xi's vision for the Chinese dream. And I think the stat that to me really jumps out is now a stat that we no longer have. In June in China, youth unemployment was 21.3%. You know what it is now? Nobody does. They're not publishing it anymore. In my experience, typically, if you stop publishing data, it's not because things are getting better, right? So I do think that, you know, there are cracks in, in, in kind of the China's strength in the, on the global stage, and I think that's going to create some opportunities. I hope that allows Biden successfully and his team to successfully get a few more concessions out of Xi, advance a few American interests. But I'm also skeptical that Xi will actually, you know, be willing to, to go there. Can we talk a little bit more about the optics, Zach, and what you what you think about, you know, does it help Biden or hurt him by calling him a dictator? Do you think that was intentional? Do you think that was Uncle Joe going off script again? Dictator, quote, in a sense, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, so said, I, look, he said, look, he is. I mean, in the sense that he runs a government that's completely different from in ours. A and, sense. Yeah, right. You know what yeah. it is? I think it's a total bullshit half measure. I think either yeah. call him a dictator or don't, you yeah. know? And I think this sort of like, in the, like, oh, like we're friendly with him. We're competitors. We're going to help each other. But also he's kind of a dictator. It, to me, like, who is that for? Who does that help? That, that's a murky position. And I think he should just pick a lane. I also think in football, there's a school of thought, right? Which is that if the coach is a big enough bastard, the players are not going to have any issues with each other because they're just going to focus on how much they hate the coach. Right now in this country, we got a whole lot of infighting and a unifying bad guy perhaps would help alleviate some of that tension. And boy, oh boy, China is right there. They're exactly that. And I don't really understand why Biden isn't leaning into that more. Yeah. Molly, before we leave this topic, and we got a ton to cover today, but, th but there's one thing that I wanted to tease apart, which is how Putin has taken sort of center stage in our public perception of autocrats, Inc., right? In this constellation of, of autocrats, how does his power compare to Xi's? What connections do you see between these two wars, which are now raging? And I think most importantly, we've raised this on the podcast in recent weeks, um, what does the prospect of a potential third war in which the U.S. is involved in some way bode for our national security, our national interests? Because if we are suddenly in a position, given she's influence in both of these other wars, where we are now funding Ukraine, trying to beat back the Russians there, also helping our ally Israel defeat a terrorist organization right next door, which is also a threat to us, and also have to come defend Taiwan from a potential incursion from China, what does that do to our, our military capabilities and our sort of national security concerns? It's layers upon layers of things, and I'll try to keep it super brief. I think the way that, you know, we've talked about this before on the pod too, you know, this idea of the vast amounts of money we are, quote unquote, spending in Ukraine. Sorry, right? one other thing I wanted yeah. to put in there, because I, I'm, I'm raising this because one of the things she said at this summit was China will achieve reunification. This is unstoppable. Yeah. Period. That was the quote. Yeah. But it it's a happy, like, fun meeting peaceful. and we had a really nice right. praline yeah. dessert. So, sorry. It, like, they are, they are intentional about this. They, are, they, they say it over and over again. And the fact that he chose to say it at this summit was a strong message. I think. It would be so nice if you would support us on this wink, wink, smile, right. smile. There's yeah. room for both of us in the world, yeah. but perhaps not other countries. Yeah, it's, um, 
I think on the starting strictly on the Ukraine side, you know, we've talked about this before here. This idea of uh, for five percent of the U.S. defense budget, Ukrainians have managed to destroy half of the fighting capability of the second largest military in the world. Anybody who doesn't see that as a really good investment should just go away. But I think more important than that is the understanding of how this money is actually spent, right? Which is, it's not like we take the gazillions of dollars, okay, it's billions, but that are allotted in defense appropriations to support Ukraine and put it on pallets and send it to Ukraine and the Ukrainians go and buy things. Absolutely not. That money primarily stays in the countries in which it is appropriated. We spend it on ourselves, in our defense companies, our things. And essentially what's been happening in the context of Ukraine is we've taken a bunch of crap sitting in warehouses that we are not intending to use and sent it to Ukraine so they can lob it at the Russians. Um, In the meantime, we have replenished our stockpiles, modernized our arsenals, really discovered a lot of weaknesses in our supply lines and our ability to scale up munitions production, in the ability to fight the kind of war we may have to suddenly fight against China or Russia or another adversary. Um, And I think we've really had to question, you know, what is 21st century warfare? There's so much focus on the over the horizon stuff, on drones, on AI, on robots, on technology. And that is absolutely a layer of the war in Ukraine and some of what we're seeing in Israel and other places. But then there's also the Trenches, the actual physical yeah. World War One style <laughs> warfare that's happening. The, be- the people and bullets. And the ability to be able to fight that war and win that war. And um, I-, I think seeing everybody sort of seeing what that texture is in Ukraine has really made us all reevaluate what it is that we are stockpiling for. Um, obviously, it would be a very different war in Ukraine if we had... Uh, done things that would have allowed them to fight from the air, to have air superiority, um, which is the way that we would never fight a war without any kind of air superiority. But, like, there's other ways to do this, but the money that has been spent, quote-unquote, on Ukraine is primarily being used to rearm ourselves. And I think we really need stuff. to understand that. With new stuff, with, with better stuff, stuff right. um, with the kind of munitions we're actually going to need in terms of missiles and shells and other things. And I think really identifying those supply line weaknesses, especially in Europe, which sort of challenged itself to be able to provide a million artillery rounds to Ukraine in a year, and they're not going to be able to do it. A million is not that much if you see how much the Russians and the Ukrainians have been shooting at each other. So it's um, the reliance on the U.S. defense industry to produce everything on the non-autocratic side of the scale for fighting and winning just wars. Like, we all need to look at what that really is and have a hard come to Jesus on what about we might what be gonna, facing in the take. next century. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that so piece I, is one to look at. Yeah, go ahead. I, so I want to pop back over to, to Duran's question for a second. Because Duran, I think you asked, like, what does another war added on top of these wars mean? And I think what it means is a softening of, of borders. Essentially, there is an effort around, you know, particularly amongst autocratic countries to make borders more fluid again. And I think that we are just beginning societally to grapple with how significant that is and how much violence and conflict that's going to lead to. And so a question I'd love to ask y'all is if borders continue to become more fluid, what outcomes are y'all most concerned about? Ooh. You know, it's interesting because there's there's the two sides of that, right? Where it is exactly true that 
Russia in particular has been the kind of disruptive tool spearheading this. I don't know. Maybe we're going to use hard power to change borders and achieve strategic objectives again, and nobody's going to stop us. We, uh, and that is absolutely true. But I think the other side of that is also the the thing that we loved in our post-World War II security architecture that NATO has been a core of, that the expanding NATO has been a core of, is this idea that we're not little tribes living in our little hill fort with our hardened earthen in, you know, embankments around us waiting for an enemy to come over the walls. And that is what security is. But the idea that security can be an expansive concept that is pushing back all the darkness that keeps us all safer and more prosperous and have the opportunity to innovate and do other things um, if there is this collective sense of what security is. And I think the erosion of that piece, and we really do see that through what Russia is pushing, what China is using Russia to push in many respects, um, where we're sort of switching back into our, what is our earthen wall that we need to defend against the invading hordes. That's not the century any of us want to have for the rest of the century, but that's really what we're approaching. And I think that whole, we need an arsenal for all these kinds of wars, narrative wars, physical wars, over the horizon wars. And we're not confronting that because I guess we're going to now be like, oh, it's fine. We're going to have an AI cooperation group with China and then we're all going to be friends again. Let's like, we all mocked Trump for his cybersecurity working group with Russia so we can all say that this is a terrible idea. But like, I just, it's the weird perspectives on, we just want it to be okay. We just want that sense of safety to return. and. It's always been an illusion because we were never looking at our adversaries the right way. And if you're Ukrainians, the idea that safety is returning, yeah. like they never had safety yeah. and they just want to have it. Zach, I think you raise a really interesting question. And the fluidity of borders is, of, of hard borders is, of, is really interesting when you think about sort of the way Molly puts it, you know, our, our land borders. But I immediately think of our digital landscape in which there are no borders. And we've talked a lot about this, Molly, about the, the information war, that in, in, in a digital landscape, there are no borders, essentially. And now, what the, the bad outcome that I think a lot about is, I think you said building up the arsenal of, of, of things that it's going to take to defend whatever this is. What is the arsenal in the narrative war? That's what I think a lot about. What is... How do you win an information war without knowing what you believe in? Without knowing, let's just take America for an example, right? One of the things that Biden, um, in that Oval Office speech, which was, I thought, magnificent uh, in the wake of the October 7 attack, he did, he did an outstanding job, but there was one massive weakness to that speech. He, he, he asked us to rally around uh, America. He asked us to he asked us to unify around the idea of America but he failed to define what it is. He didn't say here's what it means to be an American. Here is the idea of America. He talked about going over to Ukraine and when he goes over to Ukraine he takes with him the idea of America. But nowhere in that speech did he define what that is. And at a moment at this moment America I don't think we know what it means to be an American. I don't think we know what ideas and values we're defending anymore. 
and it's this war that's taking place in the information landscape that that is i think our biggest vulnerability we can produce tanks and bullets and guns all day long when america turns on the war machine wow do we know how to turn on a war machine but what where we are the weakest i think is what we stand for in the first place. What is it that we are defending? When we say the liberal world order, what exactly do we mean? What values undergird that? And where are we failing at home to articulate that? How many leaders do you know, political leaders, elected officials right now, who could give you a very clear articulation of what America stands for? And not fear. At at its very core, an idea around which everybody can agree, even though we disagree about all kinds of things, about how much we should tax people, where we should spend the money, what our policy position should be on on an alphabet soup of priorities. But who can give you a single articulation of what 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 America is, of the idea that it is we're defending? I don't know of one, frankly. Certainly no one that thinks it's to their political benefit right. to do that. Right. And that's and the that real is, problem. That is the problem. Is if you go yeah. out in the world, there are plenty of non-Americans who are happy to tell you what yeah. American values are because they are still fighting for them and want them for themselves. And we've become so muddled on what that is. And is it good or does apparently Osama bin Laden have some points to make about our bad history? Uh, I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's just it the willingness... Well, Xi Jinping uh, would like Americans to believe that Osama bin Laden has, has some, some valid points, valid to, points make to make about, right. about us. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, but I mean, this is the thing. It, it's always been a weakness. And we talk about this a lot with the left, with the right, yeah. with everybody attacking whatever we view as, quote unquote, America, uh, is that we criticize ourselves. And then often we change things because we didn't get stuff right the first time. And that's why we have had to change things. But we have done, that process has been managed internally. And are we losing the ability to reflect upon that? I think America has always had these huge waves, right? Like peaks and valleys of movement forward, retrenchment, violent movement forward again. but we've been able to manage that process. And I just worry at this point that we're kind of getting outside the normal amplitude in a way that we may not be able to correct or restore because, I mean, I have conversations with completely normal people with multiple advanced degrees who are educated, who are, you know, working in the military or other parts of society in productive ways who believe every, every conspiracy imaginable. (laughs) You know, we didn't really go to the moon. 9-11 may not have actually (laughs) happened all the way. You know, are you sure? Can you say that January 6th wasn't really an insider job to set up President Trump? And they'll just go down the list of things and then don't even mention vaccines or JFK or like all the things that are traditional conspiracies. And you're just looking at them like, how on earth can you still be a productive member of society and not believe in anything anymore? Like really believe that everything is absolute lies. Yeah. And I feel like that fracturing in America has become a normal state of being in a way that is profoundly disturbing and disruptive because that core sense of identity, and yes, there's always variation within that identity in any nation, but that core sense of identity is the only thing that gives you a basis for psychological defense, mm. which is something the U.S. doesn't even define or work on or attempt to do. And like every political party has tried to make it like, Oh my God, trying to do psychological defense is brainwashing Americans. No, no, that is not in fact true. 
And we don't, we are not defending our people against these threats. And that narrative landscape, we have these moments where we like, if Biden comes out, others come out, it was like, oh, we're winning the information war. No, we're not. Mm, that, no, we're not. If anything, the global South, everything is terrible, all you white people, still imperial colonialists narrative is the dominant one on the interweb these days. Well, it um, certainly is on the left. But not yeah. just on the left. Like. Really? But this idea that we're somehow winning an information war, maybe within our very small tribe of things, but we're not. And I think the worst part of just the narrative piece is what everybody else in this not in the middle of Europe mindset sees when they look at Russia's war in Ukraine is a U.S.-Russian war. And if we lose that war, if we don't fight that war, if we walk away from that war, yet another war we will walk away from without achieving any sort of victory, um, what they see is sort of the final defeat of America and American values in this world where you're just going to have to make deals, primarily with the Chinese and the Russians, but where making deals on that side is better for you and your nation than investing in this concept of values that has defended us and made us all prosperous and safe. Um, and I just think we're still not, we're still not fighting for that enough for ourselves because apparently this has all become very controversial for Americans. Well, but yeah, I think part of that reason, and I, I just want to put a bookmark here, but I think part of that is because the the ideologies that are driving the, I like the way you put it, the the amplitude to go out of range, out of the safety range. There are there there are there are two different ideologies, distinct ideologies. One on the let's just say far right, and one on the let's just say far left. Um, although I would argue both of them are ascendant in their own sides both of which are fundamentally incompatible with, both of which are fundamentally incompatible with the ideals and principles articulated in our founding documents, which have underscored what America is until now. Both of those ideologies are fundamentally incompatible. And I think that is the tension that we're going to have to resolve. Com completely true. You know, and I, th I think, look, it's, it's Thanksgiving coming up. You know, we're, a lot of us are going to go home and spend some time with some relatives that have some slightly different sets of facts than we do. And what we're going to see firsthand for, for anybody that's in a family where you've got a wide range of political views, you will see distorted realities. You will see people that cannot agree on the same set of facts. And if you can't agree on the same set of facts, what do you do? And when you can't agree on something as simple as who are we as a country? What do we stand for as a country? What are our priorities? I mean, th these are these Very are important basic. things, but they're basic things. And there is no, you, there's no, there's no unifying set of beliefs there. And I think that coupled with these distorted realities, they're just, that's, that is the source of so much of the tension. And sorry to always bring it back to TikTok and China and Russia and the bad guys are going to continue to drive that and exploit that. And if we can't define those things, it doesn't matter if we can, if we invest in more in defense, because we need to have both definition to those relatively straightforward questions and we need to have you know better security mechanisms in place to make sure that china and russia and, and other bad actors can't be serving that disinformation it's got to be a two-pronged approach at least 
Yeah, I am. I, I imagine that there are some listeners right now who are thinking, "Man, I wish they would just dive into some specifics on these uh, on these concepts that they're talking about." And I, 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 I think we will do that in a future episode. Um, so Delete we'll TikTok. Just, we'll just book my <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And don't let Let's, your kids use it. No TikTok. Yeah. No TikTok. No TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> no TikTok. TikTok is the devil, as Mike says. All right. Let's talk about Uncle Joe. <laughs> Last Thursday, before he got on Marine One. Joe Biden spoke with reporters and dismissed the numbers from the New York Times Siena poll that uh, I talked about on the show last week with Mike and Lucy. Uh, here is what the president said. Why do you think it is that you're trailing Trump in all these straight state polls? Because you don't read the polls off and give their 10 polls. Eight of them, I'm beating them in those states. Eight of them. You guys only do two. CNN and New York Times. Check it out. Check it out. We'll get you a copy of all those that polls. Okay? I don't believe you're trailing in battleground states. No, I don't. Right after that comment, uh, Bloomberg and Morning Consult released another poll that showed Donald Trump uh, leading Biden in swing states. Basically, the exact same results as the New York Times Siena poll. Uh, the CNN poll Biden referenced was a national poll showing Trump with a four-point lead over Biden. So <laughs> he wasn't even... Uh... Anyway, the New York Times poll has... Trump leading Biden in five of the six battleground states where they polled. Uh, Trump led in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, all by between four and 11 points. Um, Biden did lead by, in, in Michigan by two points. And then the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll had Trump leading by four points in Arizona, nine points in Georgia, four in Nevada, three in Pennsylvania, two in Wisconsin. Biden held on to a single point in Michigan. Those polling numbers made several prominent Democratic politicos question whether Joe Biden should continue running or get out of the race and pave the way for another nominee. David Axelrod, one of my favorites, said that Biden either needed to, quote, get out or get going. So far, Biden has been running uh, what we call a Rose Garden campaign. He's basically staying at the White House and not campaigning. Um, on Monday, Politico's Jonathan Martin reported that in private, Biden called Axelrod a prick following the comment. Uh, James Carville said the voters are telling Biden they don't want him to run. Uh, Zach, take it away. How are you thinking about not only this polling data, what Biden should take away from it, and what do you make of his brush off? Well, so for starters, a lot of Democratic consultants and consultants broadly, in fact, are pricks. That doesn't mean they're wrong, right? And I think that's a great example of, of Axelrod. The way I look at this is you'll see from people who make money off of Democratic politics they will give you a lot of happy speak around this. Oh, here's why there's lots of precedent for numbers like this. Here's why they're not that bad, right? Here's why, in fact, maybe they're even good. But what literally no one is saying is that the numbers are currently good because they're not good. And over and over and over again in these polls, the reason is the same. People think he's too old. There is an intractable problem, which is his age. I think, unfortunately, we are past the point where there is much realistically that can be done about it unless Biden chooses to step aside, which seems unlikely. And so I think it sucks because there was a moment where there could have been a meaningful primary. There was a moment where there could have been pressure from Democratic institutions to, to have Biden step aside or at least accept a meaningful primary. There are things that could have been done, but we are now past that point. And now the choice before us is going to be in November of 2024, likely Trump or likely Biden, unless something shocking and you know not currently predictable happens, right? And so, look, I'm going to vote for Biden in November of 2024, but I'm pissed about it. I am resentful that an 81-year-old is going to be the standard bearer for the party of young people. I am resentful that an 81-year-old is going to be running the country. I am an unabashed ageist. I think he is too old. 
And you know what? The majority of Americans agree with me and the majority of Democrats agree with me. And this is why people hate politics, because it, despite feeling that way, I'm going to vote for the guy. So are tens of millions of other people, because the choices we've got are not going to be good. And this is where it gets pretty galling uh, to see what No Labels is doing. I understand the intent. I understand the theory. More choice would be good. If it was going to be Nikki Haley versus, I don't know, generic Democrat. Yeah, sure. Go nuts. Like, let's let's try a third party thing. We'll see what happens. But the stakes are so high that it's irresponsible to me for them to do that. You know, I'm, again, I am resentful that Biden is going to be the nominee, but he's going to be the nominee. And when the choice are an old guy who I'm not super excited about for another four years versus the end of democracy, it's a layup. It's the easiest call in the world, but it's also not going to feel that great. Um, and I think that there's this happy speak in the Democratic Party, particularly from party elites around, oh, he's battle tested. He's seasoned. He's the right leader for right now. Literally nobody thought he was going to run for a second term because he was visibly too old to do so. And yet here we are. And I'm pissed. And so, is, and so are most Democrats, so are most people. And there's nothing we can do about it. So we got to vote for the guy. But again, like I think that this is a risky strategy. And the Democratic Party elites and establishment should look at themselves in the mirror and wonder, have we done good or have we done bad? And if we lose, we deserve it because we did it to ourselves, because we took a gamble on an 81-year-old for the highest office in the land. So Axelrod made the point on CNN uh, that the stakes in the 2024 election are incredibly high, and he is obviously right. It's not the same situation that Obama faced in 08 or 2012. Um, Democrats obviously had ideological differences with John McCain and Mitt Romney, but Donald Trump getting elected could fundamentally reshape what American democracy looks like, should it even survive. Um, and to your point about no labels, uh, last Thursday, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced that he will not run for re-election in 2024. Within minutes of Manchin's announcement, Montana Senator Steve Daines, who chairs the National Republican Senatorial Committee, put out a statement saying, we like our odds in West Virginia. Like, Republicans will pick up that seat in West Virginia. I think that's a, I think that's probably a slam dunk. Even if Manchin were to run for re-election, Democrats face an uphill battle to control the Senate in 2024. Now it's because just because of the map, like their Democratic incumbents in Montana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Arizona, the uh, Michigan Senate seat currently held by uh, Debbie Stabenow, uh, who's retiring, is up in 2024. Like the map is not good for Democrats in the Senate. It is almost certain that Republicans will take it in 2024. Um, but going back to Biden's refusal to earlier in this process, stepping back and allowing the very deep and talented bench of Democratic potential nominees to, to run a campaign and see who actually has the, the, you know, the, the ability to do the job. Um, you, you, I think you used the word pressure, that there's enormous pressure. And the way I see this is that in the candidacies of, of Cornell West, of RFK Jr., of potentially Joe Manchin now in a third-party bid, you see this pressure looking for somewhere else to go because Biden didn't get out of the way and allow somebody else to run, didn't allow a field to compete for the Democratic nomination. And instead, th it is coming out in other ways that are going to be very harmful to him in a general election. Disagree? I just want to go ahead and make sure that I'm not pointing the finger just at Biden. I am pointing the sure. finger at Biden and the Democratic establishment and the Democratic elites because they had the ability to influence this and to change what we're going to get months ago and chose not to because it was either politically expedient or, you know, they have a relationship with a guy or whatever. But, you know, those opportunities are gone. And, and yes, it has absolutely strengthened the candidacies of these fringe candidates. It's not like we're getting other serious people that are entering the race. 
granted, if Joe Manchin is racist, he's a serious person, but it's not a serious candidacy, right? And so essentially all we've got are, uh, you know, a group of spoilers who are going to overperform expectations, who are going to have, you know, outsized voice and influence, who are going to take the conversation in all kinds of weird rabbit holes. We know what RFK, what RFK Jr. thinks. It's nuts. The guy's a wacko. He's Looney Tunes. Yeah, That's what we're going to get. We're yeah. going to hear a lot more of him. Maybe he'll be on the debate stage now. That's great. You know who we have to blame? It ain't just Trump. It's not just the MAGA crowd. Like, we have got to be honest with ourselves about our shortcomings as a party, about where we have made missteps. And look, we got to get Biden elected at this point. Like, there is not. We are past the point of no return. We got to do it. But man, oh man, we've got to be honest with ourselves that we have already screwed up in so many different ways. It's also funny to me that not maybe not funny in a ha-ha way, but in our editorial meeting yesterday, uh, when we were discussing this, I went on a rant with my team about exactly how I would feel having to vote for Biden. And I used exactly the words you did. I, that I would do yeah. it. Of course I would do it. Of course there's no question, if, especially if it's Trump. And I would resent him for it. As I pulled the lever. We are all, uh, we are Biden voters. You, me, yeah. Ron. Guess yeah. what? It's October. Not just voters, Zach. We, like, yeah. I remember 2020. Yeah. I mean, that blur of an existence of 2020. Everything from 2016 I, onward. <laughs> yeah. He said he was going to be a transition president, you know, like, like, we a custodian of democracy to run the whole to, time. But to, yeah, like, to focus on patching the holes in the process. To, yeah. I think as a, as a non, yeah. As a non-political consultant slash analyst of yeah. any of any stripe here. For me, the thing that you see echoed from the foreign policy stance into the domestic and sort of back and forth, but this like maybe the correct vibe for running against Trump the first time. And it was COVID and it was weird, and you could campaign from one place, and everybody was sort of expecting that at the time. Maybe the vibe of look, let's just let's just chill out guys. Like, let's just be normal and it's all going to be mm. fine. Happy rah-rah, have a puppy, eat an ice cream cone was fine. But it's that same, she and I had a nice dessert energy Yeah. of not being confrontational with the problems most of the time. And it's why things like the speech you mentioned earlier stand out as these significant moments where there is actually a confrontation of a problem that must be discussed with the American public. Yes. But this desire to just not confront any of the problems, any of the challenges directly with the American people, because we don't want to feel bad anymore. And there's this belief that if you just keep feeding us rainbows and puppy dogs, we're all going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is not helping anything. Look, I want to on I'll, any side. I want to back up for just a minute and and reiterate something I said a few weeks ago, which is, I am, I am deeply, deeply thankful that Joe Biden is the president right now, especially at this time. And I and I said this on the show uh, after the October seven attacks. I had never been more proud of him as president than I was in that moment. And the way he handled it. Because I can't imagine. Can you imagine RFK Jr. sitting behind the Resolute desk at that moment? Could you imagine Cornell West sitting behind the... Re no. And I don't want to. I'm really glad Joe Biden was the president. And the way he's handled this conflict with Hamas and coming to support Israel in the way that we have promised to is exactly what we need in, in the Oval Office. And, and yet, this problem remains. I don't know, I don't know what a Joe Biden's second term will look like given 
his age and given the weaknesses that we've already discussed. So both of these things can be true at the same time. Uh, so it'll look, uh, like, it'll look like a Reagan second term plus 10 years. It'll be the aides mm. running the show because the guy's not there, you know? And, and like, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, Joe Biden's not there. He's a shadow president. He's not, but he's getting older. He's already old and he's getting older and days and weeks and months matter at that age. And he's in the most stressful job in the world. I also want to talk yeah, but about Zach. The people are saying the, right now yeah. they're saying, yeah, but Trump's almost just as old. Yeah. I mean, he would also be, he, okay. Joe Biden would, I'd would be enthusiastic about a second term, but of course I would be, I can live with that. I'd be fine with that. A Trump second term would be catastrophic and like democracy might not exist. And so for Biden, the issue is he's too old for the job for Trump. Yes. He's also very much too old for the job, but he's also a total psycho who would disrupt and maybe destroy our democracy uh, and try to again. And so like, they're not on comparable planes. That's why it would be a layup to vote for Biden if it's the choice is him versus Trump. But like, many of the problems would also apply to Trump if he didn't create even bigger problems for himself and for the country. Yeah. A thing that drives me nuts, though, looking back, is you've heard, we've all heard this for the entire year. Well, if Biden doesn't run, who's it going to be? What if there's a weaker candidate? I just think that's so tragic. We have so little faith in our ideas as a party, that we have so little faith in what we stand for, that we think, and we have so little faith in the voters, that we think we would nominate you know, the, the, the default assumption is that we'll nominate somebody worse, less compelling, less exciting, less able to unite the country, less able to move us forward. And I think that mentality is fundamentally unproductive to having a successful government and having a successful political party. Yeah. It's also important to note uh, there's not a cult of personality around Biden. Right? His, his, his base can see his faults as disqualifying. It doesn't, Trump doesn't have that problem. Um, but but this, this totally false choice we're being confronted with of Biden too old and then Trump's just sitting over there laughing while on trial for 1,700,000 different things. <laughs> and But we've created, and the media has done such a great job creating this totally false, like, you know, Biden must go, maybe Trump won't be so bad window. And they it's haven't like, looked at what he's been saying lately. And it's like, have you seen the multi-million oh, dollar Federalist now. Society effort to write crazy executive orders that will be enacted on the first day, including like withdrawing from NATO or suspending our NATO members? Like, what are you even talking? Yeah. Like, we know it'll be a catastrophe. Yeah. We narrowly avoided the catastrophe of a second Trump term where smarter, more capable, evil people would be enabling his policies that he was far too lazy and too stupid to enact the first time. We know it. They talk about it every day. He literally made direct references to, like, Hitler ideas when talking about interning people in giant camps on our borders, which the media is just like, oh, that didn't really happen. Let's talk about how old Biden is. And, like, no, it's not a great choice, but there's (laughs) no choice, and it sucks, and everybody is And everybody's mad about it. And it's... This fracture, it is a very 60s-like moment, and I'm not using that in a cheap throwaway way. I don't know if any of you watch the show or, I guess, read the book. I did not read the book. But Lessons in Chemistry, which is on Apple TV. I am not advertising it, but it's it's kind of genius in that it is vaguely about stuff happening in the 60s at the, at the current stage. But at the beginning of the last episode, there was this woman who's a genius chemist who now has a TV show about cooking who calls her black lawyer friend. They all live in California in this fairly liberal, you know, community. And is like, oh, I wore pants on TV. It's like a big national moment and everybody's going crazy. And 
the black lawyer is organizing a protest because Martin Luther King was just arrested. And like the the conflict of like what everybody's 60s was, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, where like big things were happening for women, big things were happening for African-American communities, like all these different, but like when you put them next to each other, it's sort of like, oh, your 60s wasn't my 60s, oh. was it? But I feel like that's where America is right now. Everybody has a grievance, a fracture. There are so many clear issues where leaps forward must occur in how we govern this nation and in how the government interacts with citizens. And all of those are just being tamped down by both parties. Like, nobody is engaging this, how do we change this malaise? Um, And I I mean, I have no quick, easy answer to that. But having 80-year-old candidates on both sides of an election, the rest of the world is just looking at us like, are you Uganda? Like, <laughs> just what happened? We don't understand. <laughs> it's very, it's not, it's not reassuring. Yeah. I also, one thing I want, I want to throw out there too, Ron, is it is a, maintaining the democratic coalition is extremely difficult. You know, the, 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 the range of ideologies um, the range of perspectives and backgrounds, it's enormous. You know, you've got governors like John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, who is a pro-life Democrat, you know, and then you've got uh, Bernie Sanders, right? And that's, that's the same party, same party. Then you've got Ilhan Omar, you know, then, then you've got Joe Manchin. Think about the range of just, and that's just the representatives. Then you think about all these different factions within the party. So it was always going to be difficult and I think one of the reasons that you know people like like myself will raise Biden's age over and over and over again is if you've got a younger, charismatic, energetic leader, you can kind of paper over some of those shortcomings. You know, I don't I don't agree with the guy on this thing, but you know, I, I generally do, and and he's bringing energy, or you know, I don't really agree with the person this thing, but they're bringing a lot of energy to the table, and I can live with that. But right now, I don't think that there's really any desire to extend grace to Biden. I don't really think there's a desire within the party to say, ah, I don't agree with him on that, but I agree with him on 90% of the other stuff so I can let it go. There's a tendency right now to rage. And it's not just about the issue. It's about the resentment and frustration that we're going to have two 80-year-old white guys as the nominees for president. In the early morning on Wednesday, Israeli forces found a Hamas command center, weapons and combat gear in Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa. The Israeli military also released a video showing some of the weapons seized from the hospital compound, including automatic weapons, grenades, ammunition, flak jackets. Before Israel entered the hospital, a spokesman for the NSC told reporters on Air Force One that the U.S. has intelligence that Hamas had been using the hospital as a command center and ammunition depot. This was in addition to Israeli intelligence. Uh, the spokesman, John Kirby, said that Hamas's actions accounted amounted to a war crime. Israel has said that once they entered the hospital, there was no fighting or friction with civilians, patients, or staff. Witnesses who spoke to Reuters from inside the hospital compound described the situation at times as tense as the troops moved between buildings, but that there were no reports of anyone hurt inside the hospital grounds. The Israeli military also confirmed that they brought incubators, baby food, and medical supplies to the hospital and brought in medical teams and Arabic-speaking soldiers to ensure the supplies reached those in need. In their coverage, the BBC made another absolutely egregious error, and I want to play exactly what they said in their correction for you. 
apology from the BBC. A BBC News, uh, as it covered uh, initial reports that Israeli forces has entered Gaza's main hospital. We said that medical teams and Arab speakers were being targeted. This was incorrect and misquoted a Reuters report. We should have said IDF forces included medical teams and Arabic speakers for this operation. So we apologize for this error, which fell below our usual editorial standards. So speaking only for myself, their usual editorial standards when it has come to this conflict have been dog shit. The BBC has been absolute dog shit covering this conflict. Uh, worse than every other outlet except maybe Al Jazeera for me so far. The fact that this, this is, a, this is a, a, an absolute upside down reporting of what actually happened. It wasn't just that they, they missed a fact here or there. It was that they inverted the meaning entirely. Uh, last week, I had a, a look ahead about a report from Honest Reporting raising questions about six Gaza-based photographers who were suspiciously uh, early in documenting Hamas's invasion and slaughter of Israeli civilians. They had also questioned whether those photographers had tipped off the news outlets that they worked for, namely Reuters, the Associated Press, CNN, and the New York Times. All four of those outlets denied having prior knowledge of the attacks. Honest Reporting's executive director said they accepted those denials. He added that there was nothing problematic with the two photojournalists who Reuters used. Um, however, there are still major questions about whether the photographers knew about the planned attacks beforehand. And there are even more questions about a particular photographer who the AP and CNN used. He was pictured with a Hamas leader who was kissing him on the cheek. The question I want to put on the table is how are you both thinking about not just the mistake from the BBC and the questions about using these photographers. The question is really one that is a recurring theme on this show, which is how do we deal with eroding trust in media in institutions when they themselves are squandering it hand over fist? And in many cases, it seems like they are ideologically driven in in their coverage. And I'm talking about two different things. One are genuine mistakes in coverage, and one is a commitment to skew the truth. In the case of the BBC, this is evident in the way they don't call Hamas terrorists. They won't print it. I wonder what we are to do. What are ordinary observers of the news supposed to do in a media landscape where on the one hand, you have people saying, well, you are, you're, a, you're a right winger if you rail against the mainstream media, or you're a conspiracy theorist if you don't believe every word they say. And on the other hand, we now have undeniable both errors and intentional obfuscation of facts by the most prestigious journalistic institutions in the world. What are ordinary people supposed to do with that? And, and not just on this issue, right? Not just like, on this issue, but it's been, become very, my eyes are wide open Oh, now. it's completely painful. And I think in, in, the, in the Israel-Hamas conflict, it's more painful because it is so obvious that the thing that is driving a lot of these whoopsies, big whoopsies, is the inherent 
unspoken, accepted anti-Semitism that exists in so many places and institutions and countries and ways of thinking and offhand comments about, quote unquote, the Jews and how the Jews do things. And, you know, uh, is that at times overdone? Sure. Is it a very real thing that exists in the world, many places, including in among uh, probably a number of people that you know who won't say these things until they've had a few drinks and then you're like, holy crap. Like, yes, absolutely. And we've seen so much of it online. I mean, the the internet, there is no stupider issue on the internet than anything to do with Israel-Palestinian oh. conflict yeah. stuff. And I think we've seen that in the last six weeks, right? Yeah. It's just like, you have people posting comments like four of them should be in the ovens. And you're like, did you just put that online where everyone is going to see it? No, for the that rest person of your was life? probably a professor at an Ivy League. Right? It's just like, what on yeah. earth is happening? Like the lack of rational liminal space between the extremes of, but you all get to kill them all yeah. is astonishing. And you should just read nothing on social media or the internet really about any of these, uh, about any of this issue. But um, I think the media stuff has been really painful because there is this added aspect of not just the clear bias in how this issue is often reported, mm. which has been made worse by the fact that many of Netanyahu's policies have been horrific. horrific. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sort of built this pressure on how this stuff has been reported for a long time. Uh, but then there's that... I mean, that layered with what is not just bias in reporting, but blatant anti-Semitic views is really uh, hard to explain to people uh, who don't believe this is actually a thing that is happening. But it's it's really a thing that is happening. And I am not uh, minimizing the need to talk about Palestinians, to talk about Palestinian well-being, to talk about things. But I think the ability to be honest about the fact that what Hamas just did was squander a relative period and openly said, ha we engineered a period of peace and calm in which there were economic benefits to people in Gaza in order to plan this attack and kill a whole bunch of people. Like, okay, so let's just stop the show. I mean, just, it's all ridiculous. But I think we need to understand this issue and really confront it. And not just let these news organizations get away with their whoopsies because there's been so many whoopsies from so many people who should know better. And not just because they're rushing to report a story, which is sometimes the reason things are amplified too quickly, but because there is this bias. Uh, And then understand that's happening in a lot of other things. There are plenty of outlets that are still reporting on Ukraine and the war in Ukraine as if the Ukrainians are the wrong bad aggressors a lot of the time and you're looking at it and you're just like how does this stuff even get written anymore but it does and I think um sort of we how do you make it better Uh, it's not just how do you make it better it's that we we desperately need these institutions we need truth gathering or we can all just watch TikTok or right (laughs) because there there is no other alternative and this is like a this is a very very hard problem because they have to be held accountable and we also need them and we need them not just to do better but to do like really really better um and i also so, want to say he, the bbc has been by and large a, an outstanding news organization in many different 
domains. And in many places in the world where places, American yes. news organizations have not had a reporter in yes. decades. <laughs> exactly. And and by and large, like they produce very high quality journalism. But when it has come to this, it's 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 you can't you can't not see it. Um so go ahead, Zach. So for the folks listening at home, I want you to think about what an equivalent level screw up would be in your field to saying to, to, to getting something that wrong, to making a mistake that significant. And then I want you to think about what would happen to whoever made a mistake that big in your field. And best case scenario for them, they're probably getting fired, right? They're not, there's no, no statement, oh, they, it, this didn't live up to our workplace performance standards. Someone's going to get fired. And so how do we make it better? Make there be more consequences for gigantic screw-ups like that, for starters. I think that's, that's one that, that immediately jumps out at me. And then beyond that, you know, I, I think Ron's exactly right. It's it we're we're upset about this, not because we want to pick on the media, but because it's so important that they get it right. In a world in which there are fewer and fewer purveyors of reliable information, when the ones who are supposed to be get something that wrong, it doesn't just undermine their credibility, it undermines credibility of other institutions. The ripple effects of getting something that wrong as a source of reliable news is enormous. And I think that the challenge right now is that. The institutions, when they get something that wrong, they're not treating it that way. Yeah. I want to talk about the rally that happened in D.C. this week also. Uh, Tuesday, there were almost 300,000 demonstrators gathered on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. to rally in support of Israel and against anti-Semitism. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Speaker of the House Mike Johnson both spoke, uh, as did Will and Grace Starr, the fabulous Deborah Messing, who introduced some of the relatives of hostages being held by Hamas. Uh, because of the surge, and I mean like skyrocketing anti-Semitism, there was a significant security at the event that included federal law enforcement. Um, we couldn't find any reports of arrests. Just over 24 hours later, there was a violent protest outside the Democratic National Committee building, and six Capitol Police officers were treated for injuries from it. The Capitol Police also put out a statement on X saying that officers had arrested approximately 150 people who were illegally and violently protesting. That's their quote at the DNC headquarters. And this comes after weeks of anti-Israel protests that have included shouts to gas the Jews and calling for the destruction of Israel. Uh, they've, these protests have also included tearing down American flags and uh, fights erupting when people try to burn Israeli flags. So there's one other piece of this, which is hundreds of Jewish people from Metro Detroit who traveled to Washington for the march were left stranded at Dulles Airport. The drivers from the bus uh, company that they had hired to drive them into D.C. staged a walkout. The organizers uh, had to scramble at the last minute to get buses for about a third of the people on the planes, but the rest of them couldn't get off the planes to attend the event. The plane had to turn around and take them home because the bus drivers wouldn't bus the Jews off the plane. Think about that for a minute. This is the United States of America in 2024, 2023, and they wouldn't take the Jews off the plane to go to the pro-Israel rally. And this just not only breaks my heart, but makes me so furious. And I just want to put the juxtaposition of these two demonstrations, the ones that we've been seeing all around the globe that are quite violent and nasty, and the 
rally, the, the march on, the, on Washington Mall yesterday, which was by all accounts peaceful and hopeful and teary-eyed with speakers from the highest ranks in the United States government. Um, what do you guys think about this? <laughs> what do you think about the juxtaposition of, of what we're seeing? And by the way, I should note that the violent protests of the DNC were um, <laughs> quite obviously uh, protesting Biden and the handling of this. Uh, they, are, they are essentially um, uh, violently protesting in support of Hamas. Um, Zach, what do we do with this? You know, I think Tom Nichols had a great piece about about a, a very similar subject. And you know, I think that and the gist of it to me was young people are doing these things because it's part of a trend or because, you know, it's something they believe right now or they believe they've got the moral high ground. But when they look back on their actions, the folks that are tearing down American flags, tearing down posters of, of folks that have been they're held hostage, they're going to be filled with nothing but shame and regret. And if they're not, that's even scarier. But I mean, what do we do with it? I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I look at at the attitudes amongst young people in particular, and they're really frightening to me. And I think, you know, one of the steps and one of the through lines of this episode is I think that we've got to talk about where this information is coming from, where the folks that are that are have these attitudes are getting their news. And the answer overwhelmingly is TikTok. There are forces at play trying to drive a narrative that is detrimental to, to the Jewish people, to the state of Israel. Uh, and I would say it's to America as a whole, because the goal is to stoke division. The folks that are driving these narratives that are that are leading to so, so much of this behavior, that's the goal. Like anytime somebody tears down a poster or somebody's being held hostage or tells, tears down a flag, they are doing the thing that China, Iran and Russia wants them to do because they've successfully stoked division. And so what I would just urge for folks that maybe have a different opinion than the folks on on, on this podcast is just think about how you're going to feel about your actions in 10 years. Think beyond just the moment and what feels good in the moment. Like, like really think about what you're doing, what the long-term impact of it is. And then beyond that, think about where you're getting your news and push yourself to get it from other sources that are more reliable. Um, and I think, again, yeah, this, this goes like the BBC, the New York Times have gotten plenty of stuff wrong, but they get a lot of stuff right. You know, TikTok, the batting average is a heck of a lot lower about what they're getting right. So that, <laughs> I mean, but, it's well, right about what do we do? Cheetos. I don't know. <laughs> it's right but, about Cheetos. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... No, I know. I, I, would, I would add two things to that, which is not just think about where you get your news, but think about where you get history. And I still think it, part of our what is our identity, who are we thing is understanding that we didn't enter World War II because Hitler was slaughtering Jews. We entered World War II because Japan attacked us. And why that happened is a really interesting story. But like, I think confronting the fact that there were mass atrocities occurring in Europe that not only did we not intervene in, but we did not support those attempting to intervene in and turned away Jewish refugees that were fleeing from certain death uh, until we really had no choice. And yes, within all of those landscapes, there were truly heroic people, uh, Jewish and not Jewish, uh, trying to save uh, people fleeing from these atrocities. But I think understanding the simple end story of America fought Hitler, saved Jews, which, okay, true true in the ultimate outcome of history, but the reluctance in which to engage in the obvious atrocity happening uh, and stop it before it became so terrible um, 
we need to understand our own history better and understand the moral judgment upon us for those actions and the burden that we bear because of it. It's one of the reasons, I mean, everybody has so caricatured Lincoln to death, but it's one of the reasons I love Lincoln is he was very clear that this was not a civil war about economic reasons, quote unquote, or federalist differences or whatever the other things people would say were, but it was about overcoming and correcting the moral sins of our past. And if we did not come out of the civil war, having corrected the obvious sins of our founding, we would not survive. Um, And it's good for Thanksgiving because he talked about these things very openly uh, in relation to talking about why we needed Thanksgiving as a nation and when the Gettysburg Address happened, which was also in November. And like, but that kind of thinking that only by really confronting where we have failed, where we failed to live up to our ideals, our values, our basic responsibility as decent humans of any religious stripe or moral value. And correcting those failings in order to move forward is the only way to do it. Um, This is always how we should look at our history. And, you know, we give ourselves, America, a pass a lot at our nascent and very deeply indoctrinated isolationism, which is partially geographic. Here we are on this strange American island far from all the other things. Um, And... And not a bad thing. It's good that we're not really a conquering empire that's out to, like, you know, bring new territories into our mass. But um, but understanding the cost of this isolationist thinking when we also understand our moral duties for being a rich and powerful nation of might in the world. Well put. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you are watching on the radar screen, Zach. Yeah, I mean, I think, (laughs) so I think we're going to talk about this a little bit on Politicology Plus, but for me, the big one is what's going to happen with Mike Johnson. I mean, I I expect, uh, yeah, I expect massive increases in public displays of religiosity. And I think we're seeing some of those already and I expect to see more. And I think that's going to shift the national conversation in a way that we haven't seen since the at least George W. Bush era. Uh, I think keep an eye on how religion enters the national conversation and keep an eye on how religion enters uh, political policymaking, particularly in red states and particularly in the House. I think that's a really good one. I agree. <laughs> it's a really depressing one, uh, especially if you're a woman. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, what am I watching? I mean, look, I'm always, what I'm always watching is Ukraine and especially right now, I think there is real fear of waning support for Ukraine because of the kerfuffle that the adversarial axis has managed to create, elicit support, incite, amplify online, however you, wherever you believe the origin points are. Um, but this belief that it's all unraveling and we can't possibly do enough to save it. What we don't really hear is many leaders beyond, you know, the Estonian prime minister and a few others, um, 
saying very clearly that the most important thing we can do right now is achieve victory in Ukraine because that stops a lot of this other bleeding. Um, so I'm watching that space because I think the winter in particular is going to be a pressure period on Ukraine. Um, and I think as we come into the spring, does America manage to continue its support? Does the political nonsense manage to hamstring what will be the best thing for us in the world? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, gang. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where, as Zach alluded to, we're going to talk about Speaker of the House, MAGA Mike Johnson. And that just makes me think of Magic Mike. And I with know. Mike Johnson, that's yeah, not a good super imposition. And this, this, there's this really, really weird <laughs> Although flag. I would like a deep fake on that online, just because. <laughs> there's this really, really weird flag outside of his office. We're going to talk about that. Uh, where can everybody find you? on the internet, Zach? Uh, I am elusive. I guess technically you can find me on LinkedIn, but I'm off basically all the other... I mean, I have an Instagram, I have a Facebook, but I don't get on. Deleted my ex, so good luck. Good for uh, you. We talked about you know. this. Zach's a much happier, healthier person now that he's deleted uh, X, formerly known as Twitter. Molly, where are you on the internet? I mean, I'm still on Twitter. I'm not calling it X <laughs> ever because, Jesus, it's just so stupid. Uh... I'm on Blue Sky now, I think. Okay. Um, I don't. I have not been posting very much on anything because the internet is just awash in hot freaking oh, yeah. garbage right now. And yeah. what's the point of being anywhere near any of it? Um, but, uh, and then, of course, I will have some new writing coming out soon. Right. I've been very delinquent in posting new things. But it's a real fraught period to yeah. unravel complex ideas. <laughs> and, um, we need you. I'm trying. I'm trying. Looking forward to it. Otherwise, I'm hiding in my hole. Others are welcome to join, but bring whiskey. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.